Romans chapter 10, and we will endeavor to cover verses 5 through 13 today. You should have a, a flyer in your bulletin that has notes, a note sheet that you can uh, take notes on the outline or whatever else you want to do there. Some people doodle. I guess it helps them concentrate. I, I'm not sure of that, but uh, they say it's true, so I'll believe them. And uh, this week, you will not find a Connect Group uh, study guide in your in your bulletin because of Thanksgiving. And so um, uh, we are looking forward to being uh, together tonight for our serv- service this evening where normally we would eat pie afterwards. Normally we would uh, hang out together and whatnot. We decided to forego the, the pie this evening and instead we will uh, just do praises and thanksgiving to God, which is what this season is about anyway. So I'm looking forward to being here uh, with all of you uh, tonight for that. You have your Bible open to Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to uh, read for us verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in these words. We rejoice in the the peace that we get to have with you because these words are true, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, I pray that during these next few minutes as we look at your word, as we uh, spend time studying, thinking together about what this says, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that you by your spirit would work within us, We don't want to simply uh, open a book and study it. We don't uh, want simply to think about uh, these things. We want to realize that we have your word open in front of us. And when we study and think about these things, that at that same time, your spirit is at work within us. So, Father, we submit ourselves to you. We submit our time to you. We pray that you would do your precious work in our hearts. And as we think about these words, and these words are about salvation, about how that comes to us, we ask, Father, that you would work in our hearts, work salvation in the hearts of those who don't already know you, even this morning, even as they listen to this. Father, we ask that you would do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It was fitting that uh, Tim was um, leading us in worship this morning. I was thinking uh, in relation to this text. I don't know if, Tim, if you remember this, but about 25 years ago, we were uh, working with the junior high students and maybe even the high school students, and we were talking about how to share the gospel. And, and so we did a drill. We did it right back there in the library. We did this drill where uh, we tried to see if we could imagine a scenario where we had about 60 seconds to share the gospel with someone. And the, the, the challenge was, can you explain the gospel in 60 seconds? And so we, uh, we would, you know, we, we imagined it was a car crash or whatever, and someone was laying on the ground. And we had 60 seconds real quick before, you know, before they um, passed away to share the gospel with them. So that's the kind of thing you do when you work with youth a lot. You imagine death and whatnot. So... I, I don't know how effective that uh, that if, style of evangelism uh, would be exactly. I think there was some benefit in it. But what was challenging and what was beneficial, at least for me, was to be able to think about and to be forced to think about what is the gospel? How, do you, how, how would you say it succinctly? How could you convey it to someone in a short period of time? And... And, and still have everything there. Well, when we look at our passage today, we are all the way into Romans chapter 10. And um, if you think back, what Paul has been doing for numerous chapters already, he hasn't been summarizing the gospel. He's been taking it apart and expanding it. He's been, he's been looking at small pieces and blowing them up so that we can understand the contours and what all is going on. And he's done that piece after piece after piece. He's, he's gone for chapters, focusing on the details, focusing on how they relate and, and all of those sorts of things. And he's, he's addressed the issues back in chapter 5 of what it means to be in Adam versus what it means to be in Christ. And the the consequences that come from being in Adam and the great benefits that come from being in Christ. He's, he's asked uh, questions about what it means that we are dead to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. That In fact, we've been made alive to God as slaves of righteousness. He's, he's examined those fine little pieces. He's brought those things up. But that raises the question, how are we released from bondage to the law of works and bound instead to Christ? How is that? By what means do we get rid of the condemnation? As Romans 8.1 tells us, how, how do we get rid of that condemnation? How do we become heirs with Christ? How do we receive adoption as sons? How is that made ours? In other words, the question comes to mind as we think through these past number of chapters, the question comes to mind, Paul, please tell us how to be saved. How can we be saved? And I believe that's what this paragraph is talking about, that having examined in detail the, the inner workings, the gears and the gadgets and the gizmos within how salvation works, now in chapter 10, he is holding it before us and saying, and here's how it can be yours. Here's how you can have access to that. And so he's going to talk about, first of all, the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation. We look at our passage today. And verse 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live 
by them. In other words, the law says, do this and live. That's what law says. And Paul's not just bringing that off the cuff. It's not just his idea. Leviticus 18 and verse 5 gives a very brief summary of what law is about. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So in its finest kernel, that's what law is about. Do this and you will live. Well, lest we think that's just an Old Testament concept, lest we, lest we think that uh, Paul is somehow pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament, we need to remember that uh, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, a very dear passage to, to Christians, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, he said, Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a high requirement. That's a high standard. This is what law is about. This is the essence of the law of works. Here's what you are to do. If you do that, you will live. And so that's what law is about. That's what law tells us. Well, that raises the question in our minds and in Paul's mind here, how can that be done? Do this and live? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read how they obeyed that or didn't obey that? How can that be done? We read in verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith says, verse 5 is about law, do this and live. Verse 6 says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. How can that be done? Well, Paul is quoting here. This is, again, these aren't his words. He's quoting here from the Old Testament. And the way he quotes the Old Testament, the way he's using it here, this is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the way he's using it is not simple to understand. But I'll give you what I think is going on in this passage, how he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. In that chapter, the Lord through Moses encouraged his people that he had given them his law. He had written it down. They had it in their hands. They could read it. They could memorize it. In fact, Deuteronomy begins with the instruction for them to learn it, study it, put it in their brains and pass it to their family. They were to have it down. They were to understand it. God had given the law to them. They were to meditate. They were to teach it to their families. It wasn't mysterious. It wasn't unclear. It was in black and white. They had it. They understood it. That God had communicated to them. He had not left them to fumble around and try and figure out what God might want. He just told them. And so it was near to them. They didn't have to, you know, send explorers across uh, uh, the ocean or into heaven to find what God wanted them to do. God had told them they didn't have to go somewhere and go on some expedition and bring back information about what God expected. He wrote it down in a book. 
And he gave, the, gave it to them. And they were to learn it. They were to memorize it. They were to know it. It was near to them. They didn't have to go searching for it. They didn't have to, to send somebody across the sea or to the bottom of the sea, the depths of the sea, to learn what would please God. God had told them, had written it down, what he would have them do in his law. It was that clearly communicated. It was something that they could understand. They could read it. They could study it. They could ponder it. And so those are the words of God through Moses that Paul is quoting for us. How can it be known? How can God's word, how can God's expectation, how can God's law, his standard, how can it be known? Do we have to philosophize about it? Do we have to uh, root around in some spiritual experiences and compare my spiritual experience with your spiritual experience? Do we have to find some way like that to figure out what it is? No, it's near you. You've got it. You have God's law given to you. That's how it can be known. Well, that's what Deuteronomy is talking about. That's what the passage there is talking about. Well, Paul, in the New Testament, knowing the gospel, knowing Christ, is now reflecting back on what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I think the question that Paul is answering, that he's addressing when he's quoting from Deuteronomy 30, is not how it can be known, but how can it be done? How can it be done? And I think this is, this is what Paul is saying here. He says, no one has to be sent to heaven to find out what God wants because Christ has already come down from heaven in his incarnation to show us in his life, to show us by his example, to show us in his perfect obedience to God's law exactly what God wants. He has revealed it to us. He has shown us what is pleasing to God. And how has he done that? Because he himself is not only the revelation of what is pleasing to God, he is the fulfillment in himself of what is pleasing to God. That he came to do it, not just to show us and say, hey, come along just like I'm doing it. He came to show us and to fulfill God's requirements, God's expectation. No one had to go to heaven to figure that out. Jesus came down and showed us. Jesus came down and did it in our place. Nor does anyone have to descend into the abyss to retrieve what would satisfy God's righteous judgment. But instead, Christ has done it. He himself has paid that penalty. He himself has borne that judgment. The, the judgment that we rightly deserve. He bore it and then was raised. He was raised from the dead, coming back to life, demonstrating that he wasn't just saying big words, that he wasn't just boasting when he was making claims about himself. When he was saying, all judgment is in my hands. When he was saying, Everything I say was given me by the Father. Everything I do was given me by the Father. When he, was, when he was claiming those things for himself, claiming himself to be the Son of God, to be the great I Am of the Old Testament, those things could have been just claims. Even up to his death, he may have even just died well, but those things still be untrue. But it's when God raised him from the dead that we have God's word 
on those things that Jesus said and that Jesus did. We have God affirming what Jesus said. We have God agreeing, yes, this is my son into whose hand I have given all judgment, who was acting on my behalf, who when he spoke was speaking my words and when he acted was acting what I had given him to do. This is my son. I show you by raising him from the dead. You see, Jesus could die a good death all on his own and still be a liar. But he cannot raise himself from the dead and not be affirmed by God. So when he's raised from the dead, God is saying everything he said was true. I agree with it. And the penalty that he paid, the suffering that he underwent, that punishment that he endured for other people, I accept. I accept. And thus God restores him. Thus he's brought back into life. Those requirements have been fully met. And so I think these difficult verses here that uh, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, I think that's what he's talking about. He's saying, he's saying, yes, God has told us what he expects. And that's a good thing until you realize, uh-oh, I can't do what God expects. I don't do it. My heart won't let me. I, 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 I don't do it. There's, there's something that I need more than just to know what God expects. And so Jesus comes and he shows us And how did people respond to Jesus' holiness and his righteousness? They still accused him of all manner of things. We read today in Sunday school, they accused him of having a demon. They hated him. That his example, rather than being something that people could rally around and follow, hey, let's go do, let's just be like Jesus. They didn't do that. Those who realized what he was actually like kind of felt ashamed. And they wanted to besmirch him a little. They wanted to smudge his character. But Jesus didn't just come to be the example to demonstrate before us what God wanted. He actually came to fulfill what God wanted in our place, not just before our faces, but in our place. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in these verses when he's quoting from Deuteronomy that Jesus himself not only reveals more fully God's expectation, but he fulfills God's expectation, which for someone like me, for someone like you, who realizes that you do not measure up to God's standard, that you do not measure up to that perfection that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5, that when the law says, do this and live, you realize I've not done this, so what's going to be my result? For someone like us, the fact that Jesus has fulfilled it is good news all the way. That he himself has measured up to God's standard. Well, then the next question can be uh, for us, how can that be ours? That's great news out there. That's, that's really good stuff. That's exciting to see. How can it be ours? Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. How is the word near you? Not just communication. I can read it. I can understand the words and I, I, I know what, what's required. No, it's near you. It's in your mouth. It's, it's the word of faith that we proclaim. How can this be ours? How can that credit for what Jesus has done be mine? 
by faith. By faith. Credit for meeting God's standard is near at hand. It's in our mouth. It's in our heart. It's by faith. And for the person who understands the profound and heart-level demands of the law that we can't measure up to, this is good news. This is the way of salvation. And Paul continues in verses 9 and 10 to talk about that way of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He talks, first of all, about internal belief. Internal belief. Now, I know if you follow the words, he actually talks about confession first and belief second. But then in the second verse, he talks about heart first and confession second. So it's a chiasm as a figure of speech called chiasm. He's focusing in here on the crucial aspect, which is the internal belief that's going to give rise to confession. But internal belief is what he has in mind. He's talking about faith. What is faith? That's a word that gets used a lot. It gets misused a lot. Uh, There are uh, many people who have faith. And so they take comfort that they have faith. Faith in what? I don't know. And maybe even they don't know. What they may mean is they just have a positive attitude. Things will work out. Because I have faith in my faith. But we want to understand the biblical concept of faith. And in the Bible, faith is a common word. When we're talking about salvation, when we're talking about these issues, there are three main aspects of faith that we need to keep in mind. The first aspect is knowledge. It's knowledge. We must know something in order to believe it. We don't just want to have faith as if it were an emotion that however we can conjure it up, it's adequate. It's just a certain disposition, a positive uh, mental attitude or something like that. No, uh, the biblical concept of faith addresses knowledge. We have to know something. We have to know who Christ is. We have to know what he has done. We have to know what he can do. So we need to have certain knowledge. It's not, it's not baseless. It's not blind faith where I'm just believing in believing. Now, this is a belief that's rooted in knowledge. There must be content to our faith. There must be something we believe in. Otherwise, we are not believing in a biblical sense. But, of course, knowledge can't be alone. Faith is not knowledge. Those two are not the same thing. You can, you can know something. You can know facts. You can know information. You can know a story. And it go no further than that. No, knowledge alone is inadequate. It's required, it's necessary, but it's inadequate by itself. There must also be conviction. There must also be conviction that this thing I know is true. I know lots of stories. I've read lots of myths. I've read lots of fiction. I know lots of stories, and I could tell you that story from beginning to end. I know it, but I do not have the conviction that those things are true just because I know them. So we must first have knowledge, but second, we must have conviction that it is true. And further, not just that those facts are true, not just that Jesus really did that stuff, or this is really who Jesus is, 
But I must have conviction that that is what I need. It's not just true on some deserted island somewhere out there. It's not just true of this is how physics works in space or something. It's true. I believe that it's true. I have that conviction and I have the conviction that that's what I need. My life intersects with those facts, with what is true, that I need that. I need that thing. So first of all, faith involves knowledge. And second of all, it involves conviction that these things are true and that those are the things that I need. But we're not done yet. Faith also requires, thirdly, trust. Trust. As one author put it, it's not simply believing Him. It is believing in Him and on Him that is required. We need to know things. We need to know that they are true and that that I need those things for me and then entrust myself to Him. I use the example of a chair, that if I had a a chair out here, and I've actually done this before, but if I had a chair out here and it looked sturdy and we all looked at it and examined it and it looks, you know, it's got all the components that a chair, you know, needs and, and it looks sturdy. I don't see any obvious signs of rust or breakage or I'm not going to fall through it. It's not, it, does, it looks sturdy, right? It's a good chair, right? You know, I, I could identify first. We could have a show of hands. Is that indeed a chair? It is indeed a chair. Great. We know some things. Okay. Well, but what about my conviction? We could have a discussion and take a poll on whether it will hold me up. Is it going to hold me up? Is it going to keep me off of the ground? Yeah, it's adequate. It can do it. Look, it's got you know, strong legs and, and everything else. It's put together. It's, it's, it's a good chair. And actually, it's, it's what I would need. It's big enough for me. Uh, it would keep me off the floor. It would, it would interact with me. But have I believed in the chair yet? As long as the chair is out there and I'm over here, I have not believed in that chair. Not until I move over to it and sit down on it do I really believe in that chair. That's when I have trusted that chair. That is when I have entrusted myself to that chair. And then I like to, in the illustration, I like to pick my feet up to show that the only thing keeping me from bouncing off the floor is that chair. I am demonstrating faith. Not just knowing that it's a chair, not just observing that it looks like a a good solid chair. and, And yes, and it would hold me up. It's big enough for me and all that. But when I place myself in that chair, that is when I have shown faith. Internal belief is the first thing that he mentions here. But secondly, internal belief is followed by external confession. External confession. So there's something that goes on inside, but it comes out in what we say because we talk about what we love. We talk about what we love. I debated on whether to tell this story or not, but when I was still in college, uh, Stephanie, who is now my wife and then was, we actually weren't even dating. uh, That was my fault, by the way. She called me. She called me at my dorm room in Chicago. She was calling from Canada. And I didn't answer the phone. I wasn't there. And that was, we didn't have anything like um, caller ID or anything. It wasn't a cell phone. This was way back in the day, you know, and the phone was attached to the wall still, okay? So the phone, the phone rang, and I wasn't there, so my roommate answered it. And Stephanie was pretty bummed. She was hoping to talk to me, but she told my roommate who she was. My roommate knew who she was. 
as soon as her name was given. This is Stephanie. Oh, Stephanie. He knew. He knew. Because I had talked about her so much. Because I loved her. We talk about the things that we love. You can kind of tell what, what you know, kick a person is on by the thing they talk about a lot, right? The thing that they love, they're fascinated by, they're taken with this thing. We talk about what, what is important to us. We talk about what matters. We talk about what we love. And I had talked about her enough, even though we weren't dating. I had talked about her enough that my roommate, oh, Stephanie, yeah, okay, that's fun. He knew already because I had talked about her Now, what salvation requires or what is required for salvation is possession of faith, not profession of faith. But the possession of true faith in the inner man will result in outward verbal confession of that faith because we talk about what we love. We talk about what is important to us. We talk about what we care about. Faith that is truly in the heart will be heard on the tongue. And so Paul talks about an external profession, an external confession of our faith. Uh, I wanted to talk just for a second as we're, as we're working through this about the concepts of righteousness and salvation. Righteousness and salvation. Because he says here, with the heart one believes and is justified, or a more literal reading would be, with the heart one believes unto righteousness... And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or a more literal reading would be, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. So you've got one thing happening that results in righteousness or justification. And you've got another thing happening that results in salvation. So what's the relationship between righteousness here and salvation? Is he talking about a two-step process? Well, it's good that you believed in your heart, but now you've got to confess with your mouth in order to be saved. You've got justification. You've got righteousness because you believed in your heart. But it's not until you profess with your mouth that you are actually saved. Is it a two-step process? I've heard people make that argument. And that that is not what is going on here. As you read through this paragraph, you you realize that he's using a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech called hendiatus. It means you're saying one thing by means of saying two things. You're saying it using more words than you really need to because you're really trying to get your point across. You're saying one thing, but with two concepts to convey that one idea. And here he's using the word justification or righteousness and salvation as different concepts, different words that he's using to describe the one main concept that he's trying to get across. Salvation means having the righteousness that God requires in order to be acceptable in his presence. That's what salvation means, is to have that righteousness. The only way to have salvation is to possess that necessary requirement of righteousness before God. So in this context, the way he's using these words here, he means the same thing. How can you have righteousness before God is another way of saying how can you be saved. And so he's not... Uh, advocating a two-step version of salvation that if you don't complete it, you've only got half of your conversion or something. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying that the faith that we have truly in our inner man, a true saving faith will show itself, will be heard 
in the way we talk, in the profession we make. Yes, I believe in Jesus. We talk about what we love. And thus we have that righteousness. We demonstrate that. Thus we demonstrate that we have that salvation. But that raises the question for us finally. Who are the recipients of this salvation? Who are the recipients? And this will take us through the end of our paragraph. Verse 11 says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Now this is the same verse that was quoted at the end of chapter 9 in verse 33. You can tell it's on Paul's mind. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Salvation is for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. The, The Jewish reader of Paul's letter and maybe even the average Jewish Christian at this time, would have noticed all these Gentiles piling into the kingdom of God. And that was unusual. That was not what they had been, been brought up to experience, to, to expect. In fact, as time was going on, the ratio of Gentile converts to Jewish converts was increasing all the more. All these Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. And so Paul wants to make clear to them that salvation is for everyone who believes. That's who it's for. Those are the recipients. There's no longer an ethnic component to who is going to be included into the fold of God's people. Salvation is now made much more broadly available than they had been brought up to expect under the old covenant. Membership is for everyone who believes. And then he continues, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. In other words, this salvation is available without distinction. Without distinction. It's for everyone who believes, regardless of whether you are Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. There is no distinction Salvation is for those who have spent their entire life in church and have never come to understand their real need for Christ. Salvation is for them. Salvation is for the most hardened, confirmed sinner who has ever lived. Salvation is for that person. The person who's aware that in God's eyes... He's in danger. Salvation is for that person. Salvation is for the person who's never set foot in church before, ever. There is no distinction. There's certainly not an ethnic distinction. Salvation is available to all without distinction, whether Jew or Gentile. The kingdom of God has been opened wide. And it's not just for a people group. Is not just for a particular region of the earth. It has been opened wide to all of humanity without distinction. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Jesus' name will be a recipient of this salvation. And what does it mean to call on His name? 
Well, calling on the Lord, as you read through the Old Testament, you see is a, a pretty common thing that is discussed. We, we, we see it all over in the Old Testament. It's, it's very often connected. I, I did a search this week and read through uh, passages that talk about calling upon the Lord or calling on His name or, 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 or phrases like that. And it's amazing as you do that, how often you will see it's connected to distress, that the, the person was in a tight spot. Maybe the whole nation was in a tight spot. Maybe, maybe it was David, you know, running from Saul and he's hiding in a cave somewhere and he calls out to the Lord because he's in distress. It's very often connected with that distress. For example, Psalm 145 and verse 18, and this could have been multiplied a hundred times. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. In that tight spot, when your life's in danger, I can guarantee you that Danny is calling on the name of the Lord. We were discussing John chapter 10 and numerous other places in Sunday school this morning where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And we talked about calling on that shepherd and how, you know, that picture of him being the shepherd, where does that put us in the picture? We're the sheep. We're not the heroes of the story. We're not the smart ones of the story. We're not even the good-looking ones of the story. We're the sheep. And we often find ourselves mired in the clay. We often find ourselves backed into a corner by wolves who want to eat us. We often find ourselves in that image in the spot of danger and despair. And what does the sheep do? Calls out to the shepherd. Calls out to the shepherd. Everyone who realizes their true need not just, yeah, my, you know, my finances are looking a little rough. I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. Or even the person who's in the foxhole and, Lord, if you spare my life, I will serve you and be a Christian. Now, that's not even dire enough need to, to, to talk about this kind of calling. The kind of calling out to the Lord that's being discussed here is that kind where you realize, when I die, if I die in that foxhole, if I die of this disease. If my life is ruined, what then? What then? Where will I stand before God? The final judgment, where do I stand in that context where I, where I realize God has a standard and I am nowhere near it? Most of my life I haven't even cared about it, much less done it. And when a person realizes that level of need at that moment, when they realize, uh-oh, this is the trouble that I'm in. And they look to Christ and they call out to Him to meet that need, to rescue them from that. Where they realize I've invested my life, my entire life and all of my cares in the wrong things. They may have been good things. My life has been directed somewhere other than at Christ. I've, I value these other things instead. When they realize that and they realize the spot that gets them in, that's when they cry out to the Lord. And it may be in a foxhole. And it may be on a hospital bed. And it may be in Sunday school. Where we realize our ultimate need and cry out to Him. And everyone who calls on Jesus' name will be saved. But what does it mean to call on His name, the name of the Lord? Well, we've talked about this before, but in the biblical conception, someone's name is not just the correct pronunciation of certain syllables in a row. And you've said their name as if Jesus' name is a spell 
And if we say it right, we've cast the appropriate spell and we've made God do what we want. That's not what it means to use his name. That's not why we tack on in Jesus' name at the end of prayers. When we talk about God's name in a biblical conception, when we talk about Jesus' name in a biblical idea, we're talking about who he truly is and what he has truly done. And so when we pray and we conclude our prayer with in Jesus' name, we're not just, you know, putting the the right concluding paragraph or something on our prayer. We are recognizing to ourselves the reason we get to come into God's presence, the reason we get to talk to him is because of what Jesus has done what he's accomplished. And thus, I, I have, I have the, the, the boldness to come into God's presence, God Almighty, creator of all things, and I have the boldness to come into his presence. How can I do that? Why can I do that? What makes me think that I have the right to do that? Because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done. And so when we call on the name of Jesus, we're not just using syllables as if you have to dial the phone number correctly to get to the right address. We're not just, we're talking about Jesus and who he is, son of God who took on flesh and what he has done in obeying God perfectly and dying in our place that we might have forgiveness, that we might have life from his obedience, that his righteousness would be given to us. So when we call on the name of the Lord, we are calling on him as he truly is and for what he has truly done. And Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We call on the Lord. We're not, we, we don't call on him in that way until we realize our need, the place that we really are on our own what we have made our life into, the direction we have taken it, that's when we call on him to realize, I've got nothing. I need Christ, who is all. And so just a couple of points of application as we wrap up our time today. If you have not already, you need to realize your utter need before God. Your position of deficiency before him. You you need to realize your own inability to satisfy his demands. Demands that he has the right to make of you because he made you. And so he gets to make those demands. You need to realize that utter need. And you need to believe that Jesus is the Holy Son of God who became man and that he himself did fully satisfy God's righteous demands as you have not. You have to believe that though he was innocent of any sin, yet he went to the cross to bear in his own body the punishment for the sins of other people. And he bore those sins even to death. And we can know that Jesus' payment for the debt of others was acceptable to God because God raised him from the dead on the third day. And believing that those things are true and that those things are exactly what you yourself need, you must put your faith in Jesus, resting all the weight of your sin and your need on that chair that is Jesus. And when you do that, for anyone who does that, regardless of who you are, where you've come from, God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and you will be saved. That is how 
a person is saved. That is how salvation and these things that we've talked about that can kind of seem out there, removed from us, that's how it becomes true of us, is by faith in Him. And this is, this is Thanksgiving season. And we take time, this time of year, we should always, but it's a good thing that we have this set aside, uh, this time of year to think about and praise God for the blessings that He has given us. And so the, the statements I've just made are, are to the people who have not yet believed in Christ in that way. They've not yet called upon the name of the Lord. But what about the rest of us? The, the majority of us in this room, what about us? We ought to be brought to a place. I am brought to a place all the more. Even just thinking through this of how grateful I am for the salvation that's mine in Christ. The fact that I still have not measured up to God's standard. I never will on this earth. I still have not kept His law perfectly. I still have not loved Him with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I still haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I still require and rejoice that I have His righteousness credited to me. His forgiveness that He has given me because of what Christ has done. And so I stand before God in Jesus' name. How can I have the boldness to come into God's presence? It's because of what Christ has done. How can I have the boldness to stand before you and and preach God's word? It's because of what Christ has done. How how can I have the, the courage and the boldness to face the rest of life, whatever it may bring? It's because of what Christ has done. And so I look to him and I give him thanks. And we together ought to look to him and give him thanks for what he has done. He's done a a million things, most of which we don't even recognize, that have been blessings to us. But this morning we can recognize and we can focus on this one thing, this salvation that's ours in Christ. He's given us peace with God through Jesus. And that same peace with God he offers to everyone who will call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we read about these words and we are reminded of our utter need for them. And we rejoice and we praise you and we are grateful that these words are true, that Christ has done what these words say he has done, that he has indeed come down as the Son of God who took on flesh, who obeyed, who did meet your standard, who did the law and lived, and that he died in in my place, and that you raised him from the dead to confirm that indeed you agreed with that, you affirmed what he did, his payment avails for me. I thank you and I praise you for this salvation that is mine in Christ. And we who know you, thank you. And we praise you for this peace with God that is ours by faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we give you thanks. In this Thanksgiving season, even as we meet tonight, as we come together to tell stories to each other about your faithfulness and the things that you have done to Um, to save us, to save dear ones around us, to bless us in myriad other ways. As we come together tonight to talk about those things, may you be glorified 
May your name be proclaimed. May we be built up and encouraged. We want to lift up Christ in our lives and tonight and on Thursday and when we meet again. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We are a blessed people because of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. If you want to pray with someone, there'll be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all and I hope to see you tonight.